First Kings chapter three, verse 17. We remember that uh, when we left off last week that the Lord had spoken to Solomon, uh, now the king of Israel, and had asked him, you know, ask me whatever you want and, and I'll give it to you. And rather than asking for riches or for, for uh, uh, prominence or glory or uh, asking for the uh, death of his enemies, he asked for wisdom. He just basically said to the Lord, you've called me to do this great thing and I don't have the wisdom to do it. So I ask that you give me wisdom. But it was wisdom for a purpose, wisdom in order that I might judge your people properly, lead your people in, in the way that you want to. And the Lord was very pleased with Solomon's request. And he said, I'll give you wisdom and then I'll give you all the things that you didn't ask for. I'll give you riches and I will give you honor. And so here now we come to verse 17 and we have an example of now the supernatural wisdom that the Lord had given to Solomon in order to properly judge his people. So uh, verse 16, rather. Now, two women who were both harlots, they came to the king and they stood before him. So they've got a dispute. Amazingly, in that culture, if you had a dispute that you couldn't resolve, you could bring it before the king, get a personal hearing before the king, and then allow him to judge in the situation. This is one of the weirdest things here, to see two harlots who have access to the throne of Solomon. Just amazing. Now, the only thing crazier in all of human history is that you and I have access to the throne of God anytime we want to bring a request to him. There, there is something weirder than this scene, and that's us. The Bible says that we're able to boldly approach the throne of God and ask of God uh, whatever it is that's on our heart and receive, ask him for grace and then receive from him the grace and the mercy that we have need of. So I always look at this and I kind of chuckle and say, man, I mean, that's this is a pretty busy guy. And, and they get to just kind of horn into the schedule there and everything. And then the Lord turns the finger back on me and uh, I say, boy, there are worse situations than this. So here are the two women, harlots, that came to the king and they stood before him for judgment. Here's their story. Woman, one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I, we live in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. So the children are both the same age. Tough to tell the difference between the two except to a mother. And, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. So there's only two eyewitnesses. There's no other eyewitnesses uh, by which to establish the facts. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she's sleeping with a baby in the bed. Never a good thing. And uh, so she lay on the child and probably suffocated him to death. And so she arose in the middle of the night, realizing her son was dead. And she took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and then laid him on her bosom and laid her dead child on my bosom. She did a kind of a switcheroo. It's a very sad thing, but this is what was in her heart to do. And then when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him, I mean, what a cruel thing to do, really, to a, another person. But when I examined him in the morning, so she apparently had gotten up before the light to nurse her son, and, and then he was dead. And then as the light began, the sun began to rise, and she was able to examine her son. Well, she knew immediately as a mother that indeed this was not my son whom I had born. And the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. So here we got her word against her word. There are no other witnesses. And so how in the world are you going to solve a dispute like this? The first woman, she said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke this argument that was going on before the king. What's he going to do? So the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. 
The other one says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. So he's talking out loud. He's trying to process the, the situation that's before him. Then he has a solution. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, give half to the one and half to the other. Now, he has no intention of doing this. But here's this wisdom that God has given to him uh, to understand a kind of human nature and to realize that whichever of these two is the real mother is going to speak up very, very quickly in order to spare the life of, of her child. And so this is the decree that he gives. And then the woman who spoke, who, uh, the woman whose son was living, spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her living son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. This is the love of a mother, isn't it? Willing to give him up in order to, to save his life. Give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let it be neither mine nor yours. Just divide them. Okay, that's not the mom. All right. <laughs> and so the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. And so this beautiful demonstration of uh, Solomon's wisdom. The effect that this is the all of Israel then heard about the situation, how he had handled it, the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared or they respected the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And so here he is. He's a new king following the greatest king that Israel has ever had. He's still kind of green, wet behind the ears, very, very young man, probably no older than 20 years old or so at this point in time. And when word got out that this is the kind of wisdom that he had, the nation felt uh, was uh, confirmed in the, in the sense of realizing this man really does have the wisdom, supernatural wisdom to govern a nation properly. Imagine when he takes that kind of wisdom then into the other areas of the kingdom. And so they realized we're in very, very good hands. And so Solomon chapter four was king over all Israel. And these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest and really kind of that position was kind of the prime minister in those days. Uh, Eliaphoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, they were the scribes. And uh, scribes were basically secretaries, very important office in the ancient world, because they uh, prepared all of the royal edicts concerning trade and commerce and uh, military alliances. And they kept all of the official records. And so these men had that kind of a position. Jehos uh, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Uh, Jehoshaphat was a carryover from David's cabinet. And uh, his position as a recorder was to maintain all of the records of the important kind of daily affairs uh, of, of the kingdom. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. We've become familiar with him now. So he's kind of the commander in chief under Solomon. Zadok and Abiathar uh, were the priests. Abiathar, you remember Solomon had sent home and said, listen, you know, you took made a bad decision late in your life, but you. You were faithful to my father through thick and thin. And so Abiathar is probably mentioned here uh, as kind of an acknowledgement for his long years of service to Israel. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over all of the officers. So we're going to meet these officers, 12 leaders that were over uh, 12 different districts in Israel, uh, to produce enough food and collect food for Solomon's household. And uh, so he was over them. Uh, Zabud, the son of Nathan, uh, a priest and the king's friend. And so he was uh, Solomon's kind of confidant, close friend that he could uh, speak about tough decisions with this kind of thing. Everybody needs uh, that kind of a person uh, in their life. The Lord is, of course, the best. But when you have a godly friend as well, it's wonderful. Uh, 
Ahishar over the household. And so he was over in charge of the palace and overseeing all of the servants that were part of, of Solomon's palace. And, and uh, Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the labor force. And so, remember, uh, David had conquered so much of the world in the Middle East at that time. Uh, they had defeated armies. Those armies, instead of being slaughtered and destroyed, were taken captive and, uh, and worked as servants uh, in Israel on different projects. And so he was over that that uh, foreign labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all of Israel, and their responsibility was to provide food uh, for the king and his household. This was a full-time job, not just for one person, uh, but for 12 people in a whole team. Each one of them was given a month of the year, and it was their responsibility to keep that food coming in order to, to feed Solomon and his household. We'll get to uh, why that was such a big deal in just a few minutes. And so all of their names are there in verses 8 through 19, and I will let you uh, read them on your own a little bit later rather than punish you with my pronunciation of all of them. Verse 20. And then uh, Judah and Israel, talking about just the expanse of, of Solomon's kingdom, how big it was, how prosperous it was. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. And so there was, uh, in, in the nation of Israel at that time, there was a tremendous birth rate, which is always a very healthy sign in a nation, especially in the ancient world. And so a nation needs people to continue to be a nation. And so uh, they had a, a prosperity. They had the kind of food supplies and all that they need, uh, which then uh, gave them good health. And then, uh, and then all the uh, children being born and marriages. So just a healthy sign for the culture there uh, related to Israel. Some of you have probably have followed in the last year and some of these statistics that are giving uh, about the, the birth rates in a lot of the Western countries where you've got um, birth rates where you've got the average couple in terms of two people, a husband and a wife, and maybe having 0.8 children or 1.2 children. Now we know that they have complete children, but in, in general related to the, the culture. And, of course, the alarm is you can't sustain that. And you go, 20 people, you go 20 years like that and you've lost an entire generation or two and you can't get those people back. And it's interesting in terms of some of the experts related to this that they feel that um, there are certain nations in the world where they have crossed a threshold where their birth rates are so low that even if they turn them around tomorrow, they are never going to be able to produce enough people in their native population to repopulate that nation. Russia is one of those. Italy is one of those. France is uh, one of those. So it's interesting, and they're not alone in, in all of that, but it makes you realize we look and we say, oh, look at the birth control and, and these different things, and then you've got you know, the issue of abortion and all of this kind of stuff, and, and uh, people don't even realize that for nations, they can uh, be bringing their nation historically to an end. And so here is, at least as far as, as it's been known in history, so here is a very, very healthy sign, tremendous birth rate uh, in Israel, as uh, numerically as the sand by the sea and multitude. They were eating and drinking uh, and rejoicing. So there was material uh, prosperity, you know. Uh, all through history, sometimes you know we can go down and order a, go to McDonald's or In and Out or these different places and order a number one or a number three, and you know for five bucks we get a, you, enough to stuff yourself. But historically, for a, a person to be able to go to bed at night and not have hunger pains, that was a good day. For an entire nation to know that kind of material prosperity, that was a tremendous time in their history. So we get used to things, and we don't realize so often how much we're blessed. And so here was this great, there was enough to eat, there was enough to drink, and... and uh, 
great celebration, material blessing as a, as a result, uh, rejoicing over the material blessing. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, not the Jordan River, but the river Euphrates, all the way uh, toward uh, Iraq and uh, uh, all the way to the land then of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. So this is this gigantic area. Uh, 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 Israel just dominated the Middle East at this time in terms of the the geographical area that Israel uh, ruled at this time. It was as, this is its pinnacle. It never, ever has ruled it as much land as they did under Solomon. Uh, that will change. Solomon's reign will be topped when Jesus returns and uh, where he will be reigning will be far greater. And so all of these countries that they had conquered as a result of these nations attacking them, by the way, Israel, according to the law of Moses, was not to be an expansionist nation. They were not to look at their neighbors and say, oh, we're stronger than them now. I think we'll take everything they have. That was forbidden by the law of Moses. And uh, and so this was all of this happened as a result of uh, defending themselves in war. And so they brought tribute, all of these surrounding nations, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, Solomon's provision for one day in his household was 30 cores of fine wheat and uh, so that is 185 bushels of fine wheat, uh, 60 cores of meal, uh, 375 bushels. And so you had kind of the, the, the fine meal, the white bread, and then the whole grain stuff, you know, where you kind of got to pick the uh, chaff out while you're eating it. So this was a I, – I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't remember. I remember hearing – and tried to look it up all over the place. But I remember somebody saying, and, and maybe we've got a baker here in that house tonight that understands all of this stuff. But uh, he explained the number of loaves of bread that you could bake on a daily basis from 185 bushels of fine uh, flour and then 365 uh, bushels of meal. We're talking about thousands and thousands upon thousands of loaves of bread that could be, be made on a daily basis. Each day, Solomon's household ate Ten fatted oxen. Now, when we go through this, I'm not meaning to make any of you hungry. We all want to go to Outback now, don't we? So, uh, but remember Solomon, before he's all done, he is going to, um, he's going to have a thousand wives and concubines. He's going to have children. He's going to have officers. He's going to have relatives in all directions. He's going to have Thousands of people that are going to be a part of his household that have come under the support of of his uh, of his kind of palace. And so this is what they went through every day, every day. Bring us another ten fatted oxen. That's the stuff they keep in the stalls so that when you eat the meat, it's all marbled with fat. I don't know what you call that, but that's the good stuff. You don't eat that every day, though. But uh, then there were 20 oxen that came uh, from the pastures. That's just commercial grade. 100 sheep. So a lot of uh, MLTs, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches that they would have there. Uh, lots of sheep and the shawarmas and all of that. Then they would have, they had an exotic kind of taste as well. Deer, gazelles, roebuck, and fatted fowl. It all tastes like chicken, so I don't know why they bother with it. But those of you who know, I mean, you hunters and this stuff, you know uh, why this, these things would be extra uh, special. So they say, oh, now fatted oxen again. All right, well, let's get some gazelles and some roebuck. So that's what they did. I mean, that's a lot of food that would, would come in and, the, and they'd be fed. Now, these 12 governors, each one of them, it was their responsibility for one month out of the year. They spent the other 11 months making arrangements for this food to come together because every day they needed to produce this, for, get this to the cooks in the, in the palace. So it was a full-time job. He had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side 
all around him. And so Solomon and Israel at that time enjoyed peace with all of their nation, all the nations surrounding them. Now, again, we live in the United States of America and none of us wakes up in the morning and, uh, you know, turns on the news and wonders if Canada's invaded us or Mexico. We have friendly relationships with our neighbors. And because we do, we don't have to, you know, have like military weaponry that is aimed at our neighbors and this kind of thing. And so when a nation is in that kind of place, they can put their money in, in other places. So there's other parts of the world where they're like Israel today. They're surrounded by their enemies and uh, enemies on, on every, every side of them. And so they have to use so much of their wealth, so much of their emotional capital and mental capital in dealing with that. When you, if you have peace with all your neighbors, that's a very, very special time in the history of any nation. And so there was that kind of peace that was a part of his entire reign. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each one under his own, uh, under his vine and his fig tree from Dan as far as uh, Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So it was a time of great prosperity and this kind of imagery where here is a man who is uh, uh, sitting and he's got his grapevine growing and he can get the grapes and he's got his fig trees and he can pull the figs. And the idea is not only is he being, uh, uh, was there this prosperity and they're being fed, but a leisurely kind of way of, of life in the sense that there was no, uh, people weren't living in fear that this was going to come to an end. And so, you know, kind of emotionally, psychologically and all, this was just a very, very sweet time uh, for these people. God had really blessed them. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Ah, ah, ah. Shouldn't have done that. I'm not pointing at anybody in the front row, by the way. I'm talking about having chariots. And he had 12,000 horsemen and these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all of who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. So it wasn't like Solomon was starving the people to live like this. There was plenty of food at that time. And they also brought barley and straw to the proper place in order that the animals, the horses and steeds would be well fed, each according to his charge. Now, this mention of 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, Solomon disobeyed the law of Moses that prohibited it, the, a king of Israel from multiplying horses and having chariots. And apparently Solomon does this. David didn't do it, but Solomon did it. And he did it probably as a military consideration to say, all right, I've got this big empire. I've got to rule it. Uh, we've got to be ready in case enemies do rise up against us. And so we'll develop this, uh, these chariots and horses as a part of our defense. The reason that God prohibited the children of Israel from uh, having chariots and multiplying horses in this way, the kings doing that, is because God knew that people would very easily then begin to think that the strength of their nation and the safety of their nation was their military rather than their God. And so that's what uh, God wanted uh, the kings of Israel to do is just keep the military you have. Don't bring in all of this heavy equipment and fancy stuff that all the nations around you use, because I never want the people to stop realizing that you got here because I have favored you and I know how to keep you and protect you having got you here. And so what Solomon is doing is it's kind of a double sin. Because what he's doing is he is modeling before the whole nation that I don't think that God can protect us anymore. We need to, you know, use our own noggins and our own wisdom and get some chariots and all. And he was modeling before the nation that their security was on the basis of of these chariots and horses rather than what was true. They were secure and they were safe because of the favor of God. So he's beginning to, um, uh, you know, show some signs of moving away from from the word of God. Uh, these things don't catch up to him all at once, uh, but but, ulti- uh, you know, instantly, but ultimately they will. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. 
and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. And so God gave him great wisdom. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. I think if I was wiser than all men, I'd have like a button made. Just to let it. I mean, what's the use of being wiser than all men if other, you don't let other people know that? All right, I'm just being a little carnal here tonight, I guess. It's right there in First Fleshalonians. You can look it up for yourself. So, but seriously, imagine that being wiser than all men in existence than Ethan the Ezraite. He was the, the author of Psalm 89, by the way. Uh, and Haman, uh, uh, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Maho, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So, you know, uh, all kidding aside, um, when this guy opened up his mouth on any subject, that was just the end of the discussion. It was just the perfect wisdom for the situation. And I'll tell you, when somebody possesses that kind of wisdom... Uh, they're going to become famous for it, and they're going to become very much in demand. There's, they're always going to have an audience in the sense that people are always going to want to come and ask him about how he sees this or what about that, because we're always on the, looking for wisdom in, in, in this world. So he spoke. 3,000 uh, proverbs uh, were ascribed to Solomon in the course of his uh, writings, 3,000 of the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, several hundred of those uh, uh, 3,000 Proverbs uh, inspired by God. And they have uh, been preserved in the book of Proverbs, as well as uh, a few in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not only did he write Proverbs, but he wrote 1,005 songs. Uh, Some of those are preserved for us. The most famous of all is the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. He's also the author of two Psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. He also spoke of trees. And so not only did God give him great wisdom, but God gave him a, a supernatural capacity for learning. He spoke of trees because he learned all about trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of also of animals. He, he educated him. And become an expert on every manner of animal, of birds, of creeping things, reptiles, bugs, and of fish. And so this tremendous capacity to learn. And the men, and men of all nations and all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Wow. Always reminds me, though, I mentioned it last week, we have instantaneously access to an even greater wisdom than Solomon's. James chapter 1 says, if we lack wisdom, we're to ask of God for that wisdom. He won't upbraid us. He won't make fun of us. You again? Can't you make any decisions on your own? Is that what God does? You want wisdom because you want to be in my will? I'll give you my wisdom. The access that we have, the wisdom that we have access to, even greater than Solomon's. Chapter 5. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, which was kind of a Phoenician city-state that's in modern-day Lebanon to the immediate north of of Israel, upon hearing about uh, David's death and that Solomon had become David's, uh, his son had become the next king, he sent his servants to Solomon because he'd heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. And so there was this relationship that the two of them had, Hiram had, uh, with David, went way, way back. And so this was more than just kind of a, a friendly relationship between the nations. There was mutual respect, and Hiram really appreciated and, and loved David. And so as soon as he hears about this change, he sends a delegation from Tyre to congratulate uh, Solomon upon being the next king of Israel, pay respects to him, and, and acknowledge that this change has, has occurred. And Solomon sent the same delegation, apparently, back to Hiram with a request. 
He said, you know how my father, David, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, uh, his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. So apparently Hiram kept up a little bit on uh, David's. David had expressed his desire to Hiram, who was a Gentile, about his desire to build a temple for the Lord, but he couldn't do it because God said, you've got too much, you, your life is too associated with blood. Though, uh, and so I'm going to have your son build that. So Hiram was aware of all of this. And so Solomon's just kind of reminding him of this. But he said, now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. And there's neither adversary nor evil occurrence. I don't have to fight any wars or anything like that because my father fought all of them. And behold, I propose now to build a house from the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house, uh, uh, he shall build the house for my name. And so Solomon says, I, w- I now propose to build that house as God declared that I should do that. Now, the greatest thing, the greatest accomplishment of Solomon's entire reign was the building of this temple. It's known as Solomon's temple. And so that's why uh, chapters five through eight, uh, a significant block of the book are given to the construction uh, of this temple. And so this is what I want to do. I want to build it as uh, my father David had desired. Now, before before I forget and, and before we get to where it would be a better place to remember it, but I have no confidence that I will remember it. I want to say it now. The interesting thing is that when Solomon does build the temple, he builds it. It's not Solomon that received the plans for the building of the temple from God. We know from First Chronicles that God revealed to David, not only gave David all of the wealth and everything that was required to build the temple as beautiful as what Solomon is going to build, But he also gave him the plans uh, for the temple and how it was to be built. And so Solomon's got everything now. Now it's just time to do it. And so here's this request that he makes of, of Hiram. He said, now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, where Hiram is, is around, that's his stomping grounds, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know that there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians or the Phoenicians. And Hiram and Tyre, was, they were Phoenicians. So the, uh, Solomon is now asking for the wood to come out of the forests of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, in order for those things to be, uh, to be supplied then for the building uh, of, of the temple. And so Solomon said, I'll send workers up north to Lebanon to assist in the cutting operation, but you folks really know how to work wood, and uh, so I'll send physical laborers up in order to help your uh, skilled workers. Now, Israel did not at that time have the kind of forests that uh, Lebanon had. Now, today you go to Lebanon, and because of the wars and history and all of that, uh, there are not these kind of forests that were there before. And now you go to Israel and there's all kinds of forests in the north. So things have changed. But in those days, uh, Lebanon was just filled with these cedar forests. And, uh, and, and then for in Israel, uh, what they did is they just used rocks because Israel had a lot of limestone for building uh, their uh, um, Buildings, and they had people that were skilled in, in, in cutting limestone and that kind of thing, but not very many who were uh, uh, gifted in terms of wood. And so this is the request that he makes. And so when it was that Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly. So this was good news to him. That's the kind of response you want when you make a request. And he said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son, Over this great people. Now, Hiram is probably excited uh, on a couple of levels. Number one, he's excited about the fact that uh, that that the relationships, the relationship of Tyre to Israel is going to continue to be friendly. 
And that was a lot because he doesn't have to, again, he doesn't have to worry that he's going to be invaded by uh, Israel or anything like that. So he's happy. This wonderful relationship that I've had with David and Israel as a result, that's going to continue through Solomon. Again, uh, that's a big deal for a nation not to have to worry for 40 years that we're going to go to war with one of our neighbors. It allows them to put their focus on other things. It's a blessing, and it blessed Hiram's heart. Hiram was also excited that here is Solomon, and he had to know the wealth that David had amassed and, and all. And here is this young, almost a, a boy, certainly a very young man who has become the king of Israel. He's got all this wealth. He's got all this power. How is he going to use his wealth and his power? And Solomon says, I want to use it to build a temple for my God. And, and when Hiram hears that, and says, this is, a man, this is a man who knows how to use wealth and he knows how to use power. Use it for the, the things of God. And so Hiram was excited at the wisdom that, that Solomon showed in all of this. And so Hiram, Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have considered the message that you sent me. And I will do all you desire according to the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall... Bring them down from Lebanon, uh, down the coast of, of Israel, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. I'll float them in rafts, kind of bundle them together, and we'll kind of nudge them on down the coastline by sea to the place that you indicate to me, which ends up being Joppa. And, uh, and then uh, we'll have them broken apart there at Joppa, and then you can take them away. Now, again, this had to excite Solomon because uh, in, in the ancient world at that time, the, the finest wood that you could have for building anything was the, the cedar from the cedars of Lebanon. So it was a very, very, uh, it was an insect-resistant wood. It was a rot-resistant wood. And so it was the kind of wood that you used to build something for the ages. And so this was uh, pretty exciting that this was going to uh, happen. And so uh, Hiram begins to work out the details of how it happens. I'll float it down uh, to, to Joppa. Joppa's just a stone's throw south of, of modern-day uh, Tel Aviv. And it was an ancient port. And then Solomon would provide the labor to carry the logs, then the 35 miles inland and uphill uh, to uh, Jerusalem. So that's the arrangement that was made. And then his request for payment was, you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. So he said, while we do all of this, Solomon, of course, is, is basically the proposition that he makes is that I will bear the expense of this entire enterprise. I'll pay, your, I'll, pay your, I'll pay for my labors that I send. I'll pay for the labor of your people. And then Hiram just asked, hey, could you supply food for my household during this uh, project? They had a lot of trees up there, but they didn't have a lot of grain <laughs> and a lot of grapes and a lot of fresh fruit. And so he said, well, maybe something could work out like this. And so then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according uh, to all his desires, many as he wanted. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20 uh, cores of pressed oil. And thus Solomon, this is olive oil, by the way. And thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year, probably during the seven years of the building of the temple. So it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. And so the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them uh, made a treaty together. And then King Solomon raised up a labor force. All right, we've got the... Uh, physical supplies, we've got the materials that we need, the wood that we need. Well, the next thing that you need is you need labor. And uh, so he uh, begins to work on getting that labor. So he raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. Uh, we know elsewhere in the Bible that this uh, labor force was made up of foreigners that were, uh, had, were living in Israel, again, probably a lot of them captured in war and this kind of thing. And, uh, and so 
they were uh, taken. It wasn't real. They weren't really. Uh, they weren't made into slaves, but they were forced to do this, but they didn't lose all their freedom, as we'll see in just a moment. So uh, Solomon takes these kind of non-Jewish uh, people makes a labor force of 30,000 men. You can you can haul a lot of wood with 30,000 men, uh, even without a pickup. And and so he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be one month in Lebanon, two months at home. And uh, Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. And so it was kind of compassion on Solomon's part in that he it was a forced labor situation but these men would spend a maximum of four months out of the year in Lebanon. The other eight months, they were in Israel, able to tend to their own homes, tend to their own crops and, and flocks and all. So it was kind of a compassionate situation that had been uh, worked out. One month on, two months off. Solomon had 70,000 uh, men who carried burdens uh, and, and then 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains in order to bring the supplies together, uh, the stones to build the temple. Besides that, when you've got those kind of labor forces, you're going to need some supervisors. And they had 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation uh, of the temple. Go to Israel today and uh, all that's really left of Solomon's, uh, there's nothing left of Solomon's temple, but what is left of his building projects that you can see today is the foundation stones that were used to uh, that made up a retaining wall on the west side to create the Temple Mount. And on a trip to Israel, we're able to go. I mean, there's, it's way underground because all of these layers of civilization, 3,000 years, are on top of it. And, uh, but you go under and you see these gigantic stones. I mean, they're 40 feet long and they're 8 feet high. And, I mean, they're just multiplied tens of of uh, uh, tons in which uh, they weigh and you walk in there and, uh, and and you see these gigantic stones that are there and you see how perfectly uh, they are fitted together. Literally, you can't take a knife or anything as small as that, a knife blade, and put it between any of the stones. That's how perfect the kind of work that these men did and, and then how perfectly everything uh, fitted, which is a clear testimony that I was not a part of that project. More mortar. We got a big gap over here. <laughs> okay. And so Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, uh, and the Gevalites, they quarried these stones and they prepared temp timber and stones to build the temple. And so you've got all this labor. Everybody's in earnest bringing all of this, um, uh, all of the materials together now to build it in earnest. Now, one of the things that's very interesting in, in light of the New Testament related to all of this is that in the building of the temple, by God's design, both Jew and Gentile built that temple, part of the building of that temple. There's a beautiful picture into the New Testament where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus of the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are indwelt. That temple, that ancient temple was a temple because it represented where God's presence rested. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're living stones all over the world, moving around. What kind of a temple is this? But we're a temple and each one of us as Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that temple is built by, made, it's built by God, but it's made up of both Jew and Gentile alike. Just a picture of what was going to going to happen. That wall of, of division between Jew and Gentile was brought down, permanently brought down. That racial division 
And any racial division is never so completely brought down as when Christ brings it down by indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful picture, chapter 6. And it came to pass in the uh, 480th year after the children of Israel uh, had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is April, May. This is when the building project is starting. It's a good time to begin a big project, isn't it? Uh, the rains have stopped and now you're going to have good weather, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width was 20 cubits, and its height was 30 cubits. Now, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. How they measured a cubit in those days was they would measure from a person's elbow to the tip of their longest finger. And so on average, that would average out to about 18 inches. And so that gives us an idea of, of the size uh, of this temple. 90 feet uh, long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It's really not very big. The square footage of the temple, 2,700 square feet, is smaller than a lot of houses in the neighborhoods around Modesto, isn't it? So it gives us an idea in our mind. It wasn't a, a, a terribly large structure, though the temple was about twice the size uh, of, of the tabernacle that, that uh, Moses had. And so this was the, the, uh, the size of it. The, uh, Mm, yeah, the vestibule, uh, or whatever that is, kind of like a, an open porch, which was, in, it was kind of like an, um, an entrance room before you would enter into the, the tabernacle or to the temple uh, formally. There was this vestibule. So, this kind of a fancy uh, entryway that was in the front of, of the sanctuary of the house. It was 20 cubits, or 30 feet long, across the width of the house. And the width of the vestibule, uh, it extended 10 cubits from the front of the house, so about 15 feet that it extended from the temple. Now, the, the temple, is uh, uh, it, its interior makeup is identical uh, in, in terms of the layout as the tabernacle uh, 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 under Moses. So remember, the old tabernacle just had two rooms. The temple just had two rooms. It had the Holy of Holies at the innermost part of, of the, the temple and the tabernacle. And then it had the holy place, which was a larger room where the priest uh, did their service and, and offering up incense and the showbread and all of that to the Lord where they could enter in. The Holy of Holies was only entered into one day a year and then only by the high priest. So there was the Holy of Holies, then the holy place, and then you had kind of this entry porch vestibule that was uh, on, on the front of it. He made for the house, the, the, the temple, windows with beveled frames. Now, don't they, they didn't have glass in those days. So these were just openings uh, that were there for ventilation, for light. Sometimes they would put lattice in it for decoration. Uh, or in order that nobody would fall through the opening, and so for safety reasons. And so it had, uh, it, the walls were broken up in this way with windows. And against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary, thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. So there were three stories of these uh, storage chambers, uh, side chambers. For he made narrow ledges uh, around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fashioned, uh, fastened into the walls of the temple that was able to use the ledges. Those of you who are in construction, you're loving all of this. Other people think I'm crazy uh, for even talking about this. But um, verse 7, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So they built this temple 
for seven years, got a construction project for seven years in Jerusalem. And Solomon said, I don't want all the construction construction noise. And so all these stones were uh, cut and formed in another place. And then they were transported uh, to the construction site and then slipped right into place. And so the temple of God was just quietly being built again. New Testament picture is how God is building today quietly, how he is building the temple of the Holy Spirit today. The body of Christ This goes on about his business, saving people and, and never makes it into the newspaper hardly ever. And yet he c- continues to work this last week. We had a water baptism here at the church. When we have these water baptisms, we kind of schedule them out and say, "Okay, the next one will be this. And then the next one will be three months later. And the next one will be like this and that kind of thing. And we schedule them. We never know if anybody's going to show up or not. We just keep doing it by faith. Say one day we're going to do a water baptism and uh, three grasshoppers are going to come or something. It's just going to. So we never know what's going to happen. And this last Monday, 40 people were water baptized. This is beautiful to watch it. And I always think to myself the same thing. I try not to repeat it at every water baptism because I don't want to be any more redundant than I am. But I feel it every single time. And I look at these people, they get water baptized and how God just continues to save people. This is just one little church in Modesto. In one little city in California. This is going on all over the world in every city of the world. People getting saved and water baptized. And I think to myself, you know, the reports of God's death are greatly exaggerated. But it never makes the newspapers, never makes the magazines for the most part. Glad when it does. But he doesn't care about that. He just quietly goes on about his business of saving people and quietly building his temple. And so here is this uh, all of this going on, seen very, very quiet, kind of understated in terms of how uh, it was uh, being done. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple and they went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. And so he built the temple and finished it. And he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers against the entire uh, against the entire temple, each five cubits high. So seven and a half feet high. And they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Now, here's the deal. What he's saying here. Uh, Those of you who are architects, you've followed all of this perfectly. So what you had here is. On the east side of the entrance into uh, the the temple, uh, there was that vestibule, that, and that was the entrance area. And there would be a large courtyard out outside uh, for people to gather. And then, on the three surrounding sides of this temple, uh, it was surrounded by these uh, storage buildings, essentially. So the priests had all these instruments and so many sacrifices were being done and all and a treasury for the nation and all. And so it represented storage for the work of the worship of the Lord. I remember when we uh, when uh, we built uh, this church and we went to see the architect related to all, all of this. So we looked at this and he said, all right, this many per square foot and all this and everything. And here's your total. Ah, so where do we cut? And so the first thing, I mean, the first thing you want to do is you just cut out any storage. And I remember our architect, he said, that's what churches always do. They always cut out all of the storage but you're going to find out you need the storage. So we tried to hold on to as much storage as we could. So here was just good planning. Money wasn't an object, obviously. And so they built storage into things. And we think about that temple um, being 2,700 square feet, kind of a small building. Have to remember that that temple, the people didn't worship God in that temple. Otherwise, you'd have like seating for 180 for the whole nation. I'd like reservations for 2017 to come and 
worship at the temple. The priests and the Levites, the priests did their work in the temple. But the people, when they came to worship the Lord, they would worship the Lord in this gigantic courtyard that was outside the temple area. If we look and if we take the tabernacle under Moses and the dimensions that we're giving for the courtyard related to that, and we kind of multiply it uh, to the degree that uh, the temple is bigger than the tabernacle, then that gigantic courtyard that that vestibule would have led out into would have been about 150 feet wide and 400 feet long. So you could have some pretty good services Something like that. People could really gather around in, in that. And so this is what he's describing. Kind of the three sides were surrounded by storage chambers. And then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, Concerning this temple which you're building, if you walk in my statutes and execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father, David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake uh, my people, Israel. So basically, in the middle of the building project, God comes to Solomon and he says, I just want to remind you of one thing. If the people who come here to worship me cease to understand the importance of obedience, this building means nothing to me. It ain't nothing without obedience. Don't take that bad English and ascribe it to God, but that's basically what he's saying to Solomon. And it's a good warning. Because the children of Israel ultimately are going to feel that they are right with God based upon the fact that they have this temple rather than on how obedient they're being to God God says, I just want you to know this thing means nothing if it isn't coupled with the obedience of my people when they come to worship me. And that's just the way that it is anywhere in any church. This place, this church, it it, it would mean nothing to God if we didn't come here to worship him in spirit and in truth. And if our lives were not in general characterized by obedience and a desire to be obedient. Ultimately, related to this, this temple, the Lord is going to abandon it. He's not just talking to Solomon to be talking to Solomon and saying, hey, listen, if a bunch of disobedient people who willingly disobey my, God, my word and then think that they're right with me start coming to worship me at this temple, I am out of here. And he did it. The time of Ezekiel. When they were being laid siege to Jerusalem was by uh, the Babylonians were told that the spirit of God departed from the temple and went out into the wilderness over the Mount of Olives. Rather be out there than to be in this temple that was surrounded by a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not calling us hypocrites or anything like that. But I'll tell you, the natural tendency In any kind of, I don't care what church, any kind of assembly of God's people, the natural tendency over time is to drift toward disobedience. And the Holy Spirit keeps us from doing that. But sometimes you might sit in a room like this and say, man, these preachers, they're talking about obedience all of the time. Because we have to believe it. We have to. First of all, to exhort ourselves but also to make sure that we understand that that's a priority here. Do you know that if there wasn't that prayer and that exhortation continually about the importance of obedience, over time you end up with a church that is filled with a mixed multitude, filled with willful disobedience, and the next thing you turn around is you say, where did God go? I remember when I used to sense him during the worship. I remember when he used to inhabit our praises. I remember there was a sense of meeting with him in that place. And he'll vacate a church or he'll vacate a place so quick once it hits that kind of a critical mass. So it's good not only for Solomon to be reminded of it, but us to be reminded of it as well. The the building means nothing to God if it isn't coupled 
with our obedience. And so Solomon, he built the temple and he finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple. Now he's talking about the interior of the temple, the holy place, not the holy of holies. So from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood, cedar boards. Can you just smell it? No moths at all there. Smell that cedar. He covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. And then he built the 20 uh, uh, cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. And he built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. So the Holy of Holies, it had a, a cedar boards that framed it, but it's going to be covered complete with, with gold. And in front of it, uh, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. And inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. The whole interior of this temple was all cedar. You couldn't see the stones that made up the walls at all. And so he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple. Now talking about the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, represented the presence of God to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, so a perfect cube of, of 30 feet. And he overlaid the entire interior of that Holy of Holies with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. And so Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold, stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, overlaid it with gold. And the whole temple he overlaid with gold, that is the Holy of Holies, until he finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So you realize when they were conquered ultimately by the Babylonians, why they went there to just strip the wealth of the nation and the wealth that was at the, at the temple inside the inner sanctuary. So giving us some insight into that uh, holy of holies, he made two cherubim angels of olive wood, each of them 10 cubits high, 15 feet. I mean, these are big old angels that are in there. One wing of the cherub was five uh, cubits, seven and a half feet. The other wing of the cherub was five cubits, ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. And then he set the cherubim inside the inner room the Holy of Holies, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched the wall and the wing of the other cherub uh, touched the other wall and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room and he overlaid then the cherubim with gold. And so remember that the tabernacle, the tent, Moses' uh, tabernacle, and then also this temple, the, it, it was these, the design was given to Moses and then given to David by God. And it is a, a picture of the heavenly scene. And, uh, and so that Holy of Holies having the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God, the throne of God and all. And so there was the including of these angelic, uh, these uh, uh, sculptures that were or carvings that were a part of that to remind people of the angelic. Um, activity that goes on around the throne of God. And of course, you read the book of Revelation and there's angels all over the place. They're, uh, they're creations of God and God uses them for his purposes. And these were big old angels in there. Some of these angels in the Bible that are described you say, wow, I need a new body to see him or I think I'd die of a heart attack. Really amazing uh, creatures, and so here is that was that to be that reminder of the angelic activity in heaven around the throne of God. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer uh, uh, sanctuary. Uh, so back talking about the holy place, not the holy of holies. And in the wood and in the cedar carving, there was the carved figures of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers. So very beautiful, very decorative. And the flowers of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries for the entrance of, of the inner sanctuary that You'd make your way into the Holy of Holies through. He made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. Uh, two doors were of olive wood. 
carved them uh, on them, figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. And so the door of the sanctuary, he also made, for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall, and the two doors were of cypress wood, two panels comprised one folding door, and two panels comprised the other folding door. And then he carved cherubim, palm trees, open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. Now some of you are sitting there and saying, oh, so would somebody stop this man? Stop him, please. Somebody stop him. How could he think this is important? It's important because it's in the Bible. But I know it's, it is of more, this is of more interest to certain people than it is to, to other people. But the point we do want to take away on this is you look at the beauty, you look at the work, you look at all that was involved in the building of this, this temple, the beauty, the, 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 the investment that God made in this in terms of gold and stone and cedar. And again, to realize that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it isn't that God, you know, is bringing gold our way or or this kind of thing. But the work that he is doing in our lives as Christians, the beauty that he is producing in each one of our lives as we walk with him, that's even more priceless than what we're reading about here. And so this is just a shadow. This is just a, 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 a shadow of what is the substance that Christ and the Holy Spirit is producing within us. And so he built the inner temple. I'm, I'm sorry. He built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. And so this is that courtyard, perhaps about 150 feet, 400 feet long. It had a low wall. Uh, that uh, was a part of it to set the boundaries on it. And in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, April, May. And in the 11th year, in the month of uh, Buell, October, November, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years In the building of it. So there you go. We covered seven years. In remarkable time I might add. Let's stand together and we'll pray.